Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Now or Never, the show that celebrates what it takes to try and reminds you that you are not alone when you do. I am Ifi Chiwetelu. And I am daydreaming about being anywhere but here right now. <laughs> oh, no! Well, take me with you. Where are we going? Anywhere, Ifi. Anywhere where winter is not around the corner, where the sun isn't setting at noon, I'm very jealous right now every time I go online and I see someone living their best lives overseas. Like, why can't I just move into a chateau in France, Evie? Why isn't that a possibility for me? (laughs) This is the first time I've heard you say you want to move into a chateau in France. Yeah, that's because I didn't think it was possible until I saw that Sarah and Stephen Cole managed to do it. I can tell you every time we drive up, we have our own road that, you know, leads up to the chateau. And every time we drive up, I think we still go... Really? This one? This is ours. We get to live here? It is a pinch yourself moment every day. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Chateau de Saint-Germain-des-Prés. We are so glad and happy to show it to you. We'll get you into the dirty details at some point, but uh, (laughs) we'll show you the pretty parts to start with. This is super exciting. So this, this is the original part of the house. We've come to discover that we thought the tower was 14th century. We think it might be 16th century now. There's this beautiful little Juliet balcony, and it gives you nice views out over the village. And look, we have a bell. When people come and they want to to get our attention, they just ring the bell. Isn't that awesome? I don't know why that makes me so happy, but it really makes me happy that we have a little bell. I have a suspicion why they're so excited about the bell. Because it's attached to a chateau (laughs) that they own. (laughs) Uh, Well, Sarah and Stephen, they did recently swap their four-bedroom house in Fergus, Ontario, for an 11-bedroom chateau in southwestern France. And in case you're wondering how they afforded that, they cost roughly the same amount, which tells you everything you need to know about the Canadian housing market right now. So Sarah and Stephen decided to take the leap. Or, you know, they were nudged a bit. You know, I'm going to blame CBC on this one because you guys are the ones that started airing Escape to the Chateau and then Escape to the Chateau DIY. Um, and, uh, and then we started following a couple of the vlogs of the people who were on that show. And, uh, you know, that started, to, started the idea of, well, what would have to be true for us to buy a chateau in, in France? And one of the answers to that question really was that it needed to be a business. So, yeah. like, if we were going to make this move, we needed to figure out a way of, of, of continuing to make money. Yeah, because we don't want to. We don't want to come across like we're independently wealthy. We are certainly yeah. not. This was a terrible financial decision. <laughs> if anyone is thinking of doing this, it's a terrible financial decision. Yeah, and I think the the other side of it was we were, you know, we were also looking at where our lives were were heading, and we, mm-hmm. you know, we loved Fergus. It's a beautiful town. We love Canada. It. We just decided let's take a left turn and try something new. You know, like we, we, you only get that opportunity maybe once or twice in a lifetime. Time, so yeah. we and we've figured, never been do it. terribly good at normal. So. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely not normal, that's yeah. for sure. To help pay to keep the lights on in their new 6,300 square foot home, Sarah and Stephen rented out for artists' retreats and workshops, while also trying to figure out 
how to take care of 200-year-old plumbing. You know, it's a beautiful house, but wow, when, when we're talking about doing renovations or doing anything to the house, the scale of the renovation is, is just much bigger. Mm. It's, it is, it's a bit of a bizarre way of living, but no, it's, it, it, I mean, we, we've had this, this thing on our, our TikTok and Instagram called Chateau Problems, and you're walking out the door and you realize you forgot your wallet, and it could be, you know, half an hour to find it, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's a lot more to search through than, uh, mm. uh, you know, doing the lawn. It takes me six hours to mow. It's, it's very tongue-in-cheek about living here yeah, and, you absolutely. know, obviously aware of the privilege that comes with it, but uh, yeah, it's just meant to kind of make fun of our lifestyle a little bit. Can you let me know if any of your neighbors put a house up for sale? An estate or a chateau? Like, just let me know. I'm in the looking. I tell you what, come and visit yeah. us. We'll put you up. We'll, we'll get you some good French food and uh, we'll, we'll show you a few places in the yeah. area. You just want someone to help you mow the lawn. That's all yeah, that I, is. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> we are in the I'm threatening so- to get sheep at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel the jealousy from here. (laughs) Oh, it's fuming. Well, whether it is jet-setting for vacation, searching for home in a new country, or traveling across an ocean for work, there are big moments happening for people who are headed around the world. So please bring your seats and tray tables back to their upright positions because this Now or Never flight is about to touch down. But the question is, where are we landing and who are we going to meet? We were always interested in the in the Camino de Santiago, and we said, Jen, do you want to do that? And she blinked. She wanted to do that, too. So she's really very driven and motivated herself. That's, that's how she's always been. But now I stare at the moon a little longer, and it looks further to me than it used to look. And I start to think about what it takes to get there and how long that journey will be. It's really far away. It's 400,000 kilometers away. It's a long way to go. Even I know that feeling of nothing is for certain. And I always grew up with this idea that you gotta know where your passports are. Like with plans for fleeing sort of built into the family lore, it's hard for me to conceptualize buying real estate and staying in one place for a long time. Cause to me, that's a fiction and a fantasy. This is Now or Never, Around the World. Our first stop on this world tour is a massive outdoor soccer stadium in Qatar. Where 90,000 screaming soccer fans are not only cheering on Morocco and Belgium in a FIFA World Cup match, but also a curly-haired, bearded Canadian in a sparkly blazer and a bow tie who is whipping the crowd into a frenzy while balancing on the shoulders of a very excited fan. The magic in the Meet Dancing Wayne, a guy from Smithers, BC, who somehow ended up with the world's most interesting job. Officially, he's known as an in-stadium host, but really, he's the human energizer bunny revving up crowds at FIFA soccer events all over the world. I've been watching a bunch of your videos, and I love what you do. I love how you hype people up, so I thought I was going to try and do my best to hype you up on the intro here. So 
CBC listeners, are you ready to meet the bandana-wearing, content-creating, life-is-never-boring-when-he-gets-the-soccer-fans-roaring, get-out-of-his-way-cause-he-can-break-dance-all-day, he's the hype man gaining fame, give it up for dancing way! Let's go, Trevor! That was good! You gotta be with me! Yeah, I'll call you out, I'm like... Ladies and gentlemen, it's the man, the myth, the legend himself, it's Trevor! And the whole stadium just goes quiet, like, who? Describe to people what you do, because it looks amazing. Honestly, I, I for me, it's my dream job. My job is the in-stadium host is to make sure I inject as much fun as possible into a stadium of 90,000 people. So I'm out there dancing, I'm singing, I'm putting fans on camera, I'm interviewing players, I'm doing jokes, I'm doing tricks, I'm doing whatever I can to make a laugh and pull an emotion and anything. So my goal is honestly to make sure even if you go to the game and you lose, you had a great time. That feels like a lot of pressure, like to make 90,000 people have fun. <laughs> like I have trouble I making four people in a room for dinner having fun with me, much less 90,000 fans. I think, yeah. I mean, for me, I've always been doing this as a kid. I was always doing talent shows. I was always like on stage. I was always doing stuff. And nothing will get more crazier than the fact that I host the World Cup final. And they're like, hey, when we need you to do a break. I'm like, oh, what's the break? Tell them that one billion people are watching right now. I'm like, what? They're like, one. All right, all right cool. And I grab the mic. Like, Just so everyone know, there's one billion people watching the stream. If a guy like me from, you know, doing a small town radio show in Smithers to go host the World Cup, you can do anything. Like, how did you go from Smithers to all of a sudden traveling the world, going to all these FIFA events and, and doing this? Because that's a big jump. It's a big jump. <laughs> so I ended up getting promoted from that radio job to run like all their videos and all that stuff. And I ended up getting in a terrible car accident. A drunk driver ran me off the road and left me basically for dead, told my car. I went through like rehab and all those things. And I remember going, man, if it can go over like that, I have to do what's right. And I don't even know what right is, but I know it's not sitting at a desk doing this. And I went full time on TikTok for like a month. Like I was already kind of doing it. I was already kind of growing, but then I went hard. I was dropping like eight videos a day. Like I was going crazy, going live twice a day. Like I was going nuts. And then within one month, FIFA slid in my DM. They slid like, into your DM. They were like, what are you doing next month? Or like, not, not even next month. It was like next week. I'm like, nothing. <laughs> and they're like, well, we're hosting this event called the Gold Cup Final. We're looking for an, an extra stadium MC. If you're willing to come, we can't really pay you that much right now because we don't really know what this is going to look like. But And I was like, done. I'll do it. It doesn't matter. I'll sleep on the floor. I'll, I'll get there. Got there and rocked it and had the best time ever. And then... Then they kept calling me. And then I did the Arab Cup, which was like a big test run for the World Cup. So I knew if that went over really well, the year after, World Cup would be there. And the Qatar, organize, like the Q22 would be like, all right, we know what Wayne does and all this stuff. And then that was it. And then I kept going. And, I, and this year has been nonstop crazy, sending me all over the world. I've been to Qatar. I've been to Morocco. I've been to France. Oh my goodness, look at these I've been to, I've been all around the U.S. and it's not stopping there because I'm leaving to Indonesia soon and right after that I'll be in Saudi Arabia. It's like, I'm going to a country and they, I don't speak the language. Like, are you sure? Like, you want me? They're like, yep. And, and I realized that, that good energy, fun and dance is universal. Like, and that was something I had to learn on the fly that I was like, oh, I actually don't need to speak Arabic or French or be in Morocco and have to learn French. I'm like, nope. 
I can be out there and people can be like, it's dancing wine. I'm like, this is crazy. Like, <laughs> like I'm out there having fun. And that's, that was my best moment ever. Like singing Deo, screaming Deo back. I'm like, man, like this is Freddie Mercury. Like I'm actually Freddie Mercury right now. This is crazy. <laughs> and it's a lot of smiling. Like I smile like for like, it feels like 10 hours straight. Cause you're, you're always just on and you're always that fun. You're, you're kind of the ambassador, right? And like, for me, it's really cool being that ambassador. And it's also really cool being that ambassador who's from Canada. Cause the minute I'm somewhere else around the world, they're like, Oh yeah, like, man, where are you from? Like Canada. And I, the, the, the way their face lights up because it's Canada is the best feeling. The best memories of my life are in Smithers BC, even though like, Oh yeah, the world cup and all stuff. Honestly, it's Smithers BC then world cup because I love that place. They're the, they saw me as me and encouraged me so much just to be me. Northern BC saved my life. Like I, I had some like um, mental health lapses, truthfully. And I went through so much mental health stuff. Like there's, there's a lot of points in time where I can think about my life where I go, man, I, I didn't want to keep doing this anymore. I was just like, I think I'm done. You know, like I've, why am I here kind of thing, right? And, and I'm so glad, so glad. It didn't go that route because I've, I got to experience so much kindness and I got to give so much kindness back because of so much kindness I received. And, and again, a lot of that started in Northern BC. I would love it if you could hype up right now our listening audience. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen and ladies, human beings of all shapes and sizes, it's now or never on the CBC, and it's all about kindness. Each one, teach one, it's me and you. Let's get through this planet together. Let's make some fun, and let's have the time of our lives. Let's go! <laughs> I don't know how to maintain that energy. You don't, Ethan. Wow. You do not follow that energy. <laughs> I would collapse in a puddle of my own exhaustion after that. Yeah. If you want to see pictures or videos of Dance and Wayne doing his thing and hyping up the crowd, head on over to our CBC Now or Never Facebook and Instagram pages. Taking a trip can be a lot of work. You've got to do the research, plan your itinerary, pack your bags. But for Jeremy Hansen, planning for his big trip is taking years. And it involves zero gravity training. Because Jeremy is the first Canadian who is going to the moon. This mission has kind of reminded me to look at the moon a little bit differently. I used to look at it differently when I was a kid. I remember this, looking at it and thinking there were boot prints on the moon. And then as we do as humans, you start to sort of take it for granted. Uh, but now I stare at the moon a little longer and it looks further to me than it used to look. I mean, I start to think about what it takes to get there and how long that journey will be. It's really far away. It's 400,000 kilometers away. It's a long way to go. Uh, and it's really, it's really big. I mean, it looks small in our night sky, but it's actually quite large. And so I start to kind of think of those things, what it's going to be like to get up close to it. Astronaut Jeremy Hansen is going to share his hopes and fears and reveals what his family really thinks as he prepares to go to the moon. That's coming up on Now or Never. You don't always need to get in a car or on a plane or into a spaceship to feel transported somewhere else. For Lima Alizé, 
a Palestinian-Canadian living in Vancouver, every news story about the Israel-Hamas war, every Instagram post, every family WhatsApp message brings her mind and her heart to Gaza. I wake up, I have my tea, and I'm on social. Um, There's also the time difference to negotiate, so usually that's when, like, new news is sort of coming out. Um, A lot of the journalists are posting anew at that time. Um, And so, yeah, it's become like mornings are for the news. And then I'll usually call my mom and we check in and check the group chat. Every day is check the group chat day. And I used to avoid the group chats and now I'm in them very, very deeply. I had to accept pretty early on that I, I'm just going to be at like a limited capacity life-wise because this this has to take priority. Um, but I also do have to work and be a human in the world as much as possible. I think that a lot of Palestinians in the diaspora just naturally live with that cognitive dissonance of, I'm very aware of all these atrocities that are happening. And like, yet here I am trying to go to work and and be in front of people and put a smile on my face when I feel like screaming. At the end of the day, I just need to tap out. You know, it's very simple. I, I do laundry and I'm grateful for water. I shower and I'm grateful for water. I eat and I'm grateful for food. And it's just a very, very simple life because the priority is really about other people's stories, not mine right now. The Israel-Hamas war of the last six weeks is the latest and deadliest chapter in a decades-long battle. Like many Palestinians, Lima's grandparents were forced to flee what is now Israel in 1948. They became refugees in Kuwait, where Lima was born. She still has family in Gaza including a little girl named Busan and her family, who Lima's mother and aunt support. So all day, Lima is glued to her phone, looking for updates in the family group chat. Let me just scroll back to actually just a few days ago. Um, So somewhere around November 2nd, we'd lost track of Basan and her family and we hadn't heard from them. Uh, my aunt's just saying, you know, let's just, let's just pray that they're just disconnected from the internet or maybe they're on the move. And so I think this was just on Saturday. I asked them to translate a message that came in in Arabic because my Arabic's a bit rusty, but they said, just got this message from Basan's mom saying, Alhamdulillah, that my daughter's and my mom's injuries were not so bad. So thankfully we're doing better than others. Yeah. And that's, that's really all, of, all that we've heard from them so far. Where are you when, you, when you're receiving those messages? Oh, it's... Um... It's, I kind of describe it like I feel like I'm living behind a glass wall. It's very, it's very weird to see it on my screen and just get these updates and texts that mean so much and not be able to respond and not be able to, you know, for all our technology and all our connection, you really feel the gaps and you really feel the silence. And... Mm-hmm. It, it, my my body has gotten used to this level of stress from the just not knowing. 
And so, yeah, it's, it's a very strange experience to, to feel it through your screen and to see photos of, you know, my great-grandparents' home in Gaza was still there, uh, housing many, many extended family members, aunts, uncles. Um, and we, we got a photo that they sent, and, it, and it's just been literally, there's a crater in the ground where the house used to be. And that was something, like, for all my sharing on social media, I could not, I could not post that photo um, because it just, I think for me, it really, it sort of killed a dream. And my sister, my sister says she feels the same way where we, we grew up knowing about this wonderful place that our grandparents grew up and how they grew up in these fields and farms and olive groves and playing with chickens and animals. And it's, it's not like anything my sister or I have ever experienced in our lives. And the thought of the idea that maybe we could have gone there for the summers and spent it with our, our grandparents and all our families and learning how to make olive oil. Like we, there are these, they're not just stories and vignettes, they're lives that we didn't get to live and their lives that our grandparents didn't get to see through. And so to see that home just gone, like that's all our history. That's it. That was what was left of it. The very little that was left of it was just completely gone. And now we're like, whatever happens from here, what is there to go back to? Like now there's no image in my mind of something to go back to. Like before that house was a tangible representation of like, we're still here. You know, we might be hanging on by a thread, but we're still here. And it was that hope that like, okay, well, maybe one day, hopefully, hopefully, if things get better, we can go. It'll be safe enough, safe for us to go visit. And now it feels impossible. You know, it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about this when I know part of your family history like your your family fled um, decades ago, and yet there's something about the way you speak about it now that it that it feels a new sense of loss. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, my so my grandfather uh, was from Ramle, and he f- fled during the Nakba. in 1948. His his father and him had to sort of give up their home and. They walked through the desert just trying to figure out what's the next place to get to. They just had, like, the clothes on their back. And he uh, he actually passed away on October 31st of this year amidst this whole thing at the age of 97 um, in an old folks' home in, in North Vancouver. And it um, the timing is so just whatever you believe in or don't believe in, it just feels cosmic. It just feels like he, you know, we were saying like he hitched a ride to heaven's highway with the rest of his people, you know, like he, maybe he felt now was the right time for him to let go. But having him around for so long, he was the living memory of all of that because he fled from there. So it feels like it ends a chapter. 
And like, where do we go from here without him rooting us to that history and that story? Like now we have to figure out how to carry it on. When you say, where do we go from here? I also think about, you know, your relationship to a place to go. Yeah. Like there's a legacy here. Mm -hmm. You said like Mm -hmm. two generations down. What, what has your relationship been to, to an idea of, of home and and homelands? That's such a good question. I, it comes out in weird ways. I think I like I, my grandparents ended up being Palestinian refugees and residents of Kuwait, and they never had a passport until eventually they came to Canada during the Gulf War. So they fled in their lives. They fled like war twice um, myself once because my my family was also living in Kuwait. Even I know that feeling of nothing is for certain. And I always grew up with this idea that you have to have like you got to know where your passports are. You got to know where your like your emergency document, like with plans for fleeing sort of built into the family, like lore and practices. And so now I realize I have things where it's hard for me to conceptualize buying real estate and staying in one place for a long time, because to me, that's a fiction and a fantasy. And it's my my body doesn't even recognize that as a thing that can happen. For a long time, living here as a Palestinian, especially, I felt I've had to explain who I am to people. And that's very hard to do. And it makes it very hard to feel like a place is home and to feel like you belong and you're integrated when a lot of people around you, well-meaning, just don't really know how to talk to you about where you're from. It, It sort of creates this constant alienation. Yeah, I have a community here and I live here, but my mind and my heart and my body and my culture and my soul are truly somewhere else. Um, And that place just doesn't exist for us. There's another kind of connection that you described in your essay, and that's the connection and the distance you're finding with your friends who are Jewish American. What, What are your conversations like these days together? This timing is really excellent because um, I actually just saw my really good friend, and it's the first time we saw each other in person. Our, our sort of first mission was to take care of each other. We both wanted to talk honestly, I think, about what we're thinking and feeling. Her her biggest concern, and I and I share it, is is the rise in anti-Semitism, and and her her family feels it, and and they're terrified of it, and I share the same fear, and so really the conversation was much more about how do I keep you safe and how do you keep me safe but in the end we really like just aligned on the fact that we are for life Mm. um and that's that's what we wish for everybody and we don't know what that looks like and we can admit that but and all we can do for each other is make sure that we're preserving each other's lives it feels simple to say it it's funny that you say that. I was thinking about that this morning. I I do think it is that simple. I think it is about human values. If you value life, you value life. It's, mm-hmm. I don't really see it any other way. You know, like I, I, I want people to live. I want people to thrive. I don't understand how that's controversial. And I think that's where all the hurt really is, is, is who do you trust now? Who's actually going to restore justice? 
if things have been going on this long. She doesn't feel safe. I don't feel safe. How do we turn this around? I think at the end of the day, we, we walked away with, you have conversations with people in your community. You share stories from people who are living through this and you keep hope. Mm -hmm. Even for the people, and especially for the people who don't have any right now. Lima first shared her story in a powerful personal essay for CBC First Person. We will share that with you on our website, cbc.ca slash now or never. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is Now or Never. I'm Ifi Chiwetelu. And I'm Trevor Deneen. And today we're headed around the world and we're bringing you with us. Our next guest isn't headed around the world. He is leaving it all together. What? And it all starts. <laughs> yeah. That sounds dark. Is he, uh, is he okay? No, no, no. I, I, I do not mean it. <laughs> Wait. Listen, it all starts when Jeremy Hansen was a little boy on a farm near London, Ontario, and his parents ordered a set of encyclopedias. I saw a picture of Neil Armstrong standing on the moon. My mom tells me I was five. I don't, I don't actually remember how old I was, but I know I was young. This encyclopedia set like arrived in order. You know, you got like, I don't know what it was, like a book a month or a book a week or something. And A came first, obviously. And I was in love with the airplane section in the encyclopedia. And I spent a lot of time in there. And one day I inadvertently flipped to Armstrong, uh, first human to walk on the moon, and saw that picture. I can still see the picture burned in my brain. That's how many times I looked at it. I can see it sitting on the page as I talk to you. And I just I turned my treehouse into a rocket ship and started talking about space, was checking out library books on moon bases. And I shared this excitement about exploring space with people. And I, now that I look back, I see that is how I actually got there is people were helping me They're like, well, if he's interested in space, maybe I could get him to push himself in this area. With support, Jeremy did push himself. He got a degree in space science, he became a fighter pilot, and next year, Jeremy Hansen will become the first Canadian to fly around the moon. Right now, Jeremy is living in Houston, training at NASA so he can be ready next November when the Artemis mission blasts off for the 10-day trip. I have so many questions that I want to ask him, but I need to get something off my chest first. Has anyone told you that you resemble any other astronauts in the world? Other astronauts? No, I don't think so. Okay. No. Because you, I looked at your picture and I thought, oh, you look like Buzz Lightyear. Oh, true. Yes, I've heard this before. Yeah. <laughs> Infinity and beyond. 
is it still surreal? Like, are you still like, am I really, am I really going to be there? Yeah, it really is. Like even just yesterday, we went to the Boeing facilities outside of New Orleans and uh, we were with the employees there yesterday that actually build the rocket, like the big orange part of the rocket, if you look at it. And it was like a, a bit of a surreal moment flying back last night thinking, wow, I mean, it's crazy. I'm going to ride on that thing. Uh, I'm going to fly around the moon. It's hard to believe like a human body can leave planet Earth and travel all the way out to the moon and come back. It's pretty extraordinary. You you bring me back to just being a kid and staring up at the sky and it just feeling like infinite. When when you now like are looking at the moon, <laughs> does it still feel kind of fantastical or are you looking at it like what comes up for you when you're looking at this place that you will you will be? This mission has kind of reminded me to look at the moon a little bit differently. I used to look at it differently when I was a kid. I remember this, looking at it and thinking there were boot prints on the moon. And then as we do as humans, you start to sort of take it for granted. Uh, But now I stare at the moon a little longer and it looks further to me than it used to look. And I start to think about what it takes to get there and how long that journey will be. It's really far away. It's 400,000 kilometers away. It's a long way to go. Uh, and it's really, it's really big. I mean, it looks small in our night sky, but it's actually quite large. And so I start to kind of think of those things, what it's going to be like to get up close to it. You know, you're part of this episode where we're talking with people who are going around the world, and you are the one person we're talking to who is leaving Earth. Um, and, and when you talk about like realizing like it's so far away, I get chills because that feels, that feels a little terrifying. Do you have some fear about this trip? For sure. And I'm not living in fear of this trip. I'm excited about the trip. Um, I have a lot of confidence in the team and our ability to take on the challenges. But we we spent a lot of our day talking about the ways that we could kill ourselves uh, on this mission and how we're going to mitigate those risks and how we'll deal with that. I mean, that we are talking about that stuff all the time. And it's a little bit normalized for us, but we it kind of gives you the sense of if you invest time in it beforehand, um, then you will be prepared and you will be able to deal with it as a team. Gives you confidence. Um, But you are also ever mindful that there are things that can happen that you just, you can't guarantee survival. And there are risks and we just have to accept those risks. And then you just kind of put it in a risk reward matrix and realize it is worth taking the risk to see an example of the great things humanity can do when we set big goals and we work together. And we look around the world today, there's lots of things to be concerned about, lots of reasons to look and say, gosh, we're not doing great as a human race. And Artemis program is not going to fix all of that, but it is going to be an example of how we can work towards a better future for ourselves on the planet. And that makes this risk worthwhile. I know as much as this is a dream, there's also so much sacrifice that's that's a part of this. I was reading an interview that your wife Catherine did where she talked about you becoming an astronaut being both the best, but also the most challenging thing that has happened for your family. What what has what is some of the sacrifice that's gone into making this career happen? And, you know, and I recognize, we recognize as a family, it's not limited to the astronaut career. It's very common. There are many careers, even, you know, my wife's career has been very demanding for her as an obstetrician gynecologist. You know, she has some tremendous gifts and she works really hard to bring them 
to the world as well. And so it's not just the astronaut career, but this, this one definitely has, you know, there's been a lot of travel involved, a lot of time away from the family. And when you try to raise a family, um, you know, and, and one of the parents is gone and there are lots of single parents who do it too, uh, but it's just more challenging, right? There's also, you know, with respect to this mission, there's just a lot more visibility and, uh, and a lot more risk. And, you know, thinking through preparing our family, you know, for these kind of intense emotional moments, uh, you know, watching a launch, a big rocket basically exploding into space with a loved one on board. You know, there's all these little aspects, I think, that are, they are a strain and a weight on any, on any family. What, what is it that you hope your, your kids take away from you doing this? Hmm. My kids are, are young adults now, really in grade 12 and, and first year university. And uh, the three of them, we have twins. Um, and so I, I, I really get to hear what they think of it. And I'm really proud of them because they really, truly get why this mission is much, much bigger than just their dad going to space and flying around the moon. They really reflect back to people the importance of this team of showing the world that, you know, this isn't just one country. This is countries working together in a time when countries aren't all working together. And I hear them reflecting these things back. It makes me very proud of them. some rapid fire ask an astronaut questions for you okay you ready i'm ready (laughs) okay are you bringing anything fun with you oh um uh, we hope to we just don't know how much space and mass we can bring yet but i'll definitely bring something for my family i'm thinking like some little keepsake that they'll that they'll be able to hold on to uh, when it comes back and it will have flown around the moon for them and just to make sure that i've taken them with me on that journey and of course still looking for that what's that magical thing that i could take that will bring canadians with me on the mission that they could see floating in space with a moon backdrop and I haven't landed on what that will be yet, but, I, but I'm taking suggestions. <laughs> Listen, if a Now or Never listener is listening, tell Jeremy what your suggestions are for him to bring up with him. Uh, thoughts on space food? Oh, I like it. Yeah. I'm not a picky eater. Um, I like convenience um, over uh, a laborious preparation process. And there's a lot of actually pretty good space food. It's really tight quarters, you know, with the, with the three astronauts. How, how are you thinking you're, you're, you'll manage that? <laughs> yeah, we don't. We're going to manage it with microgravity because if, uh, if we were in gravity in that small space for nine days, I think it would be rough. But in microgravity, you can sort of spread out a little bit. It's just going to be comical, I think, for people in that little space. It's like going car camping in a van for nine days, but you don't get out of the van. We'll be ready to get out. When we hit the Pacific Ocean nine days later, we'll be like, OK, I'm ready. <laughs> don't, don't talk to me for six months. <laughs> I really love how much perspective this experience is is giving you on humanity, on Canada. Um, I'm also wondering what perspective it's giving you on your journey. Like when you think about young Jeremy um, turning his play place into a space station and dreaming about that, what what would you like to say to that that past version of you just dreaming of the future? Now that I look back on it, it's easy to see, but you create your own future. I think there's you know some odds to all of this and some luck. But I do think you create your own future and you, you have to be actively overcoming you know, the mental challenges that you have. You're always kind of selling yourself short as a human being. So what I would tell young Jeremy is like, 
you, you don't have to see how it all works out. You just have to believe that good things will come if you continue to just keep striving and telling others what you're trying to achieve. Don't expect a straight path, but there is a great future for you if you just stay in that creative. You heard Jeremy. He needs your suggestions on what to bring into space with him to represent Canada. Weigh in on our social media and we will share it with him. Also, weigh in. Does he look like Buzz Lightyear? A little bit, right, Trevor? He does look like it. Yeah, completely he does. Once you go to the moon, though, is every other trip just average at best? (laughs) When he comes back, I'll make sure to ask him. Like we're on a Wisconsin Dells and you're like, I was at the moon. It's okay. This is Now or Never. I'm Trevor Deneen, and today we're taking to the skies and bringing you the stories of people all around the world. All right, guys. Here's the crew. It's all the ladies, and we got Layla back here. Hi. Rachel, Jen, Layla, let's go. And Whitney. Jen is focused. Yep. I'm just going to get a zoom in mm. on this face. She is powering through. She's mm. got this. Yep. Yes. Nothing's going to stop us now. Just a few weeks ago, Jen Sharinga and a group of 16 friends, family, and caregivers who call themselves Jay's Crew had one goal in mind, walking and cycling 300 kilometers across northern Spain. So, Jay, my girl, I hear you cycled straight up a hill today. Is that correct? Yeah, blink for yes, beauty. And how did you feel? Are you feeling uh, exhausted and fresh? Yeah, nice. The Camino de Santiago is a pretty iconic pilgrimage that has roots of many distances and terrains that all lead to the Santiago de Compostela Cathedral in Spain. What makes this hike even more special for the Sharinga family is that it marks 10 years since a life-changing accident. In 2013, Jen's car lost control and she struck a tree head on, leaving her with a traumatic brain injury. While her memory and processing is intact, Jen is unable to speak or move at will and communicates by blinking. Those early days have moments that Jen, her mom Jeanette, and her dad Harold all remember well. It was, it was a pretty dark period. Um, we, we didn't feel like we were getting the help that we needed. We, we sort of wanted more and Jen didn't sort of qualify. Um, so that was the hard part, really. That was a, quite a hard part. We were told not to set our hope too high, but uh, that we didn't know what would be possible, whether she would ever walk or whether she could ever eat or talk. None of that was known because she was didn't have any of those abilities. Mm-hmm. Out of the 10 years, the first three was kind of a... Uh, grieving and kind of a um, sad period for us where we just wished it would all go away and so that that pivoted at the three-year point uh, I think because of the just the support uh, of our church community Mm -hmm. and we just felt like uh, there was a point when Jen was had a spiritual healing from the trauma and that changed, that changed the attitude from uh, wanting to j- make it all go away to 
to just positive, you know, and um, new ideas and um, wanting to live and, and try things. So that, and we needed that. One of those new ideas that now seemed possible was flying 6,000 kilometers from their Oakville, Ontario home to spend 30 days hiking across Spain. Here we have Jen coming up on her bike. She's just switched back after a stint in the jogger and she is ready to rip. Look at those legs. Fire legs, Jen, power them up. Yes. <laughs> That's my J money. Buen camino, mama. Did you see Jen ripping it? I saw her ripping it. Who came up with the idea for the Camino? Did it start with one of you first? Well, we um, we were always interested in the in the Camino de Santiago, and we had seen that movie, The Way, which we just liked quite a bit. Right. And then our daughter Whitney said, "Well, there's one where um, two people do it in a wheelchair. Like um, there's a guy he he says um, he wanted to do this. He was he's uh, in a wheelchair, and and his friend said, i 'I'll push you.' So that that's the name of the the book and the movie. So as soon as I heard that, I said, we're doing that. And we said, Jen, do you want to do that? And she blinked. She wanted to do that too. So mm -hmm. so we would never do it without her wanting to do it. But she was in right from the very, very start. And so we knew that was probably four years ago. And it took us about four years to think about it and how we would do it. She needed to work on things like um, trunk control and, um, you know, lots of different physical parts of it. We needed a year to plan it, the logistics and the route and the, how to move gear, what gear to get. So it took a lot of planning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jen, when you think about the four years that you were getting ready, was there ever any point where you thought, maybe, maybe we shouldn't do this? Mm. <laughs> Is that a yes or no? Mm. I, I think I said no. She's not blinking. I think she always wanted to do it. Yeah. She, she's, you know, she's the most motivated person that I know, and, and um, she'll, she's up for some, everything all the time. So if we just ask her, do you want to do this, she'll say yes. And when she's doing her uh, mm. physiotherapy, they say, do you want to do more squats? And she always wants to do more. So she, mm. she's really very driven and motivated herself. That's, yeah. that's how she's always been. Mm. Yeah. I'm really appreciating how much prep went into this. Like you said, it took a year mm. of planning, four years of just working on, on the physical. And as much as you can go and do like a practice trip or, mm. or go for a 15K hike here and there, yeah. I'm sure there's still surprises once you actually start doing it. So take me through those first like couple days when it wasn't a trial run anymore, when it was actually like we're doing it and we're, we're here until it's done. The, well, the trail can be rocky, right? Mm. And it can be uh, bumpy. So we had to um, find the way to keep Jen comfortable on there. Mm. But uh, mostly it was that she, she surprised us. Like mm. she, she sets herself and gets prepped to do it and then she's you know holding herself um, in position w even while being pushed and also um, while being while cycling she's just working hard the whole time to do it okay so we here we have Jen standing up she's been stood up by uh, Eric here and then Lay in the back is doing some adjustment and Jen typically has one her right leg that wants to lift up a little bit and her left leg that's strong enough for her to balance on. Okay. And she's in. Hey, Jen. 
I, the most surprising thing to me was that I wasn't just there caregiving. I wasn't ju just there as a PSW. I was there hiking with Jen. Jen's not just disabled. We're just a group. Each of us has our role, and we each do our thing, and, and that's what happened. Yeah. How about you? What changes did you see in yourself over those 30 um, days? Some muscles in our calves. <laughs> we really, everybody noticed that. We, it was uh, really kind of interesting going up and up and down hills every day. Uh, we really gained a lot of strength, so we felt quite good coming back afterwards as well as physically. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, spiritually and emotionally, it was, yeah, it was just um, all around, it was just a high, I would say, yeah. After you conquer the Camino as a family, what's next? Oh. I surprised myself, and I looked at the mm. Portuguese Camino already. But <laughs> uh, no, I can't take that on just yet. But yeah. uh, but that would be a nice one too, I think. We know we can get places. Yeah. We know uh, we could we could even improve on how we did it logistically. So yeah, we're we're looking pretty broadly where we could take Jen and and how many people we could take along with Jen. Yeah. Well, congrats to all three of you. The pictures, the videos, all of it looks stunning. And uh, I'm excited to see, to see what happens next. One video that I found really moving was when the entire Jay's crew arrived at the square in front of the church that is their final destination, all wearing their pink shirts, cheering and applauding each other. Jen! I'll share that with you on our CBC Now Never Facebook and Instagram. Special thanks to Jen's medical care team at West Park Healthcare Center. Big thank you to our team of producers who helped put the show together, who I consider the best producers in the world. And we traveled around the world this episode, so we checked. It's yeah, true. We know. <laughs> Sarah Tate, Bridget Forbes, and Betsy Trumpner. I'm Trevor Deneen. I'm Ipi Chiwete. We will see you next time. Take care, everybody. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.